This is a Wool Observatory podcast. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Welcome to Stossel, the space oddity. Hello, this is Cody Halfmoon, and you are listening and or watching, if you're tuning in on YouTube, to Star Stuff, a space podity by Lowell Observatory. I am Cody Halfmoon. And I am Haley Osborne, and today we have Lowell Observatory director and astronomer Jeff Hall. Hello. Yeah. I'm glad we found you. I know, honestly. <laughs> I'm glad I found the room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Dr. Hall joined the staff at Lowell Observatory in 1992 as a postdoctoral research fellow. In 1998, he was appointed Lowell's Associate Director for Education and Special Programs, and from 2008 to 2010, served as the project scientist for the Lowell Discovery Telescope, then known as the Discovery Channel Telescope. So you've been here longer than a lot of our educators have been alive. That's becoming a disturbing reality yeah. as the years yeah. go by. How, just, how many of the employees weren't born <laughs> uh-huh. when I started working here? Yeah. I just felt like I wanted to point that yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I'm, because I'm I care a, about you. I'm a fossil. <laughs> <laughs> it's just nice not feeling like super, I feel so young right now. I, and I want to thank you for that, Jeff. You're, you're very welcome. <laughs> he was appointed interim director in June 2010 and director in December 2010. So... Just They just changed their mind kind of halfway. They're like, oh, director now, or was that always the plan? Um, that was not always the plan. Oh, okay. I, you know, when I started in 1992, it was on a three-year appointment as sort of a typical oh. postdoc on a National Science Foundation grant, and they're typically three years. Uh, but as we'll, I guess we'll get into this, but it's a long-term research program that we've only just wrapped up in 2020. So right. oh, wow. yeah, just kept going and sort of sank into the... Into the quicksand, and I'm still here 30 years later. Nice. You looked around, your your tag was updated with a different title, and you're like, God, well, right. I, I guess I, here we go. Here we go. I was only 70 when I started working here. Yeah, so man, you're so young. <laughs> and uh, then in 2022, so um, recently, your title was changed to executive director, mm-hmm. which right. I th- I like that title better. Well, yeah. it. It's a it's a more standard title yeah. for the you know CEO. Uh, it's more what I'm used to. Well, yeah. and part of the reason was this year, 2022, was the first year we created actually a chief operating officer position because mm-hmm. the the organization is getting so much bigger, and really much of what I do these days as the XD as we call it is a lot of fundraising. That's what um, nice. nonprofit CEOs need to do. So so I'm moved into a much more outward facing role mm-hmm. and and Amanda our CEO is doing a fabulous job is is really dealing with we many of the Amanda. more operational we love Amanda, we we love all love Amanda yes. we're big fans of Amanda, <laughs> good, big good, Amanda. Big fans. I, I bring her up quite a bit and uh, speaking of you fundraising shout out to Dr. Jeffrey Hall for the mics yeah look at our mics guys right these oh. are beautiful they, thank you. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, we have a, a group of donors who contribute to what we call the Director's Opportunity Network. Mm-hmm. And that's basically oh just... Oh, my God. Little... I thought Don was a person. Oh, well, that that's me. I'm the Don, right? <laughs> You're going to contribute. <laughs> I was like, oh, thanks, this guy named Don, I guess. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's I mean, that's how we approach our donors. It's like... You're going to contribute very generously. I understand. <laughs> yes. yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's the director's opportunity network. Although now that I'm the executive director, I've been thinking we should call it the X Don, which sounds Ooh. like something out of the Avengers. Or, or yeah, I, don't know. I like, I like um, that. But you know, they they send in a, a very generous donation every year, yeah. and that becomes a little pot of money that we have to do cool stuff. And sometimes it's mm-hmm. for the astronomers, and mm-hmm. sometimes it can be nice audio equipment to make things like this a little easier to pull off. Yeah. 
Yes. Totally. Um, <laughs> our fans on YouTube, are they're patient, they are kind, and they are wonderful. And they have been so great <laughs> with us as we've worked out our, our audio. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but now, oh, my God, we're so excited. Mm-hmm. So, you know, thanks. Thanks, Xcon. Yeah, it looks spiffy. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but it's not just your your directorship at Lowell. You're also a solar astronomer. Sometimes I just I'm a recovering astronomer. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I want to um, I want to pick at that a little bit mm-hmm. because um, astronomer astra meaning the stars. Mm-hmm. Aster solar mm-hmm. also also a star. So is that sun. just like I'm only I only like this star. Oh, no. In fact, my, Mr. S- Mr. Soul. <laughs> no, there's a couple of things here. Um, I, of course, the sun is a star. Yeah. And so, um, but I approach uh, solar astronomy from a much broader perspective. My uh, expertise and training in grad school was really in, in stars and stellar astronomy and mm-hmm. stellar physics. And the program here at Lowell involved observing a large set of stars as similar to the sun as we can find, and then also observe the sun to sort of get points of comparison. Oh, cool. And, and the, when I'm talking to like elementary kids about this, the way I always like to put it is, imagine your teacher gives you a report to write about people, and you don't know anything about people, but you try to write that report by observing only one person, and mm. you're you're not going to get a very thorough view of what humans are like. Mm-hmm. And similarly, you know, if we only observe the sun, we have a pretty limited perspective on how stars like the sun might evolve over time. And so we use this laboratory that goes by every night um, to get a lot of extra test cases for, you know, what the sun might be like on the long term. And that's really interesting because the the variability and evolution of the sun is, I mean, it's interesting from just the astronomical perspective, how do stars work, but the sun is the principal energy driver into the Earth near Earth environment and mm-hmm. the Earth's atmosphere. So this relates to you know climate change and energy balance in mm-hmm. the Earth's atmosphere, how the sun varies, mm-hmm. as well as conditions in low Earth orbit where you know there's this increasing amount of people and hardware up there that we rely on every day, like mm-hmm. to navigate, and <laughs> and you know solar storms have significant impacts on that. So so all of this sort of, why should we understand our star better? There's a lot of physical reasons, but a lot of really practical reasons too. He cool. giveth and he taketh away. That's great. <laughs> so Haley, you were on, um, in, in the last season, in season mm-hmm. one, you did a podcast about uh, astrobiology. Yes. And I was eavesdropping the entire time yes, and writing you, you notes like, oh, my God. Um, but they, they were uh, – did they talk about the uh, comet seeding and um, the different – like, a, did they talk about the Drake equation or which episode was that? Um, so we talked about the Drake equation in the Arecibo. The Arecibo episode, episode right. Yeah. So the astrobiology one, we did briefly talk briefly. about comet seeding, but that Arecibo was mostly with Observatory. the Arecibo Observatory okay. podcast. Because yeah. we had a conversation about how old a, a star would need to be to support alien life. The sun uh, being a pop two, or no, pop mm-hmm. one or pop, pop two, two. Mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and we haven't really talked to, we've never talked to a solar, you're our first solar astronomer. Yeah, you are. So oh, okay. could you... Tell us what this means, pop one, pop two, and why that's well, important. And sure, well, the sun life. is a the sun is a middle aged star. You know, mm-hmm. it, it so stars of the the mass of the sun 
Uh, we know they, they tend to last for about 10 billion years before they exhaust mm -hmm. the fuel in their cores and then become uh, red giants yeah. and trash. We're them. 5 billion years in. Yeah, we're about 5 billion years in. So the sun is about halfway through its <laughs> life cycle. about trashing and <laughs> exploding. Which okay. is, you know, and, and the sun you. is also a little unusual in that there's only one of it. You know, most stars that we see in the sky are binaries or member of multiple systems. Seriously? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. How am I just learning this? Really? <laughs> but that's that's what the podcast is for. Right? Wow. Okay. Yep. Learning opportunity. So they're mostly binaries out there? Yeah. Just like yeah, little... binaries or, you know, you look at like Mizar, the, the star in the, the bend of the Big Dipper's handle is actually six. Um, oh, my God. Yeah, and they're sort of multiple pairs orbiting each other. So it's um, so like a single sun in your area kind of thing? Like there's no one? <laughs> right. And, and so, you know, these are stars that live long enough for, you know, planets to form and for possibly life as we know it to develop in those planets. The very high mass stars like you see in Orion, mm -hmm. um, you know, I always date myself. Nobody gets this joke anymore, but like the, the big stars in Orion, I, I call them the John Belushi's of the galaxy because mm -hmm. they live hard and die young. I get you, and, and yeah. Without sufficient time to... to let the process of life as we understand it uh, begin to develop. And, and there's actually a fairly narrow window even uh, uh, in the sun where the earth will be hospitable for life. Because one thing we know about um, stars as they evolve, they tend to become steadily more luminous, meaning warmer and warmer conditions. So, you know, hold, don't hold your breath. It's only about another billion years and the earth is going to be a pretty unpleasant place uh, to live. But the fact that, you know, when we observe the sun and observe its variations, it's fairly, it's fairly sedate uh, mm -hmm. relative to some stars like it. And and so, yeah, we've got it's this. Middle-aged, it's older. Middle -aged. It's not in its 20s anymore. Well, there's, there, <laughs> so there, there are actually some analogies. One, one thing we, we know about stars is called the, the, the well-known rotation age relation and that as stars age, they gradually kind of spin down, and, just, <laughs> and their activity also spins down. So you know, kind of like, kind of like all of us, you know. Once you're, yep. you know, you're, you're still young and spry, so you're like very active stars. I'm so young, I'm just I can't a, relate. I'm just a fossil, so I don't so even young. have an activity cycle anymore. Or anything <laughs> like that. Um, so, but it is—it's so wonderful now. I think that we are developing the technology to really look for evidence of life around other stars. And, and that's just a really interesting new uh, field um, and actually has emerged as one of the principal questions. You know, the astronomical community, every 10 years, we do this big self-study called the Decadal Survey, and the community asks itself, what are some of the key questions we want to answer in the upcoming one or two decades? And then that helps inform what are the ground-based and space-based telescopes we need to answer those questions mm -hmm. and, you know, origins and, you know, life elsewhere in the universe. Yeah. Now that we can detect it, this is a leading question because it's one of humanity's oldest questions. Are we alone in the universe? But if the universe yeah. is 13 billion, Bill, yeah. 13 billion years and the sun is 5 billion years and it's a pop two star. It's a second generation. Yeah. Second generation. Um, so... There could be other stars like ours out there at the same age, oh. single, mingling, and that's, planets. And those are exactly the stars we're looking for. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, well, we call them uh, solar twins or solar mm -hmm. analogs if they're a little less like the sun. These are stars that in every character 
are the nearest dead ringers to the sun we can find. So they're the same mass, which means about the same temperature. Same age is very important because yeah. young stars are really active. And, and, you know, very active stars have a lot of... Uh, you know, the types of explosions and eruptions that we see in the solar atmosphere, which is not necessarily good for stable environment on a planet. Um, so identifying these stars is actually a really interesting thing. And it's the so interesting, it makes people so choke up. Yep. <laughs> it's just so funny, the parallels. I'm just like, when you're talking about like people in their 20s, they're like, oh, they're so like explosive and active. And <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> they right. don't have time for anything else. Right, and by so the time funny. they're my age, you know, you need like 30 cups of coffee a day. Right? Honestly, I need 30 cups of coffee a day. Oh, well, well, that's, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah, don't worry. It's not just you. <laughs> um, I actually have a question for you um, mm -hmm. because we were talking about this before we started the podcast, but um, you were mentioning, you know, like searching for sun-like stars and everything. Mm -hmm. um, who do you do that with? Yeah. So this is a very long tradition here mm -hmm. at Lowell Observatory, this research program. So the, the one that I was involved with got started when I got here in 1992, mm -hmm. and it basically ended when COVID hit. You know, we, yeah. were, we, were, we were winding it down uh, uh, once we got to about 2018 to 2020, and I can explain why. Um, but yeah, the pandemic hit, and that, that was pretty much the end of observation. So right now, I am, I've, I've got sort of the final summary paper from 25 years of observations nice. is about two thirds written because of my copious free time as the director of the observatory. <laughs> this paper is proceeding at the rate of a, a runaway Wagner opera. You know, it's just, <laughs> you know, someday I'll get it done. Um, but um, so I was hired here by Dr. Wes Lockwood, uh, who's now Astronomer Emeritus uh, at Lowell. He came to, the Lowell, came to Lowell in, I think, 1973 and retired in 2010. And then mm -hmm. I kept the program going. Um, we have had collaborators around the, the country who observe the sun and the stars in different ways. Mm -hmm. So we observe using a spectrograph. So we're dispersing the light into its component wavelengths and studying the activity of stars that way. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we have collaborators who just observe the overall brightness because we're trying to understand how's the energy output from the stars varying mm -hmm. as the activity cycles go up and down. And now, uh, I think on a previous podcast, you said you'd interviewed Joe Lama. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so this is the principal reason we shut down our program is there's a very parallel system now at the Lowell Discovery Telescope, and it's the combination of the telescope and the express spectrograph, uh, which came to us as a result of our partnership with Yale, and this wonderful acronym Joe came up with, the Lowell Observatory Solar Telescope, or LOST. And, and those two telescopes, the 4-meter LDT and LOST, are now connected to express using optical fibers, which is exactly how our spectrograph was set up. We had a solar feed and a one meter telescope with optical fibers, but this instrument was built in the 1980s and we all know what's happened to technology since then. And so it's just completely obsolete. And, and it, what, we, what we did is we kept observations with our instrument going long enough to have some overlap with Joe's observations mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and his collaborators at LDT so that we can you know, cross calibrate and stitch the data series together because gaps in data series create lots of problems. You know, mm -hmm. did the instruments mm -hmm. change? How do you how do you put that all together? Yeah. Very difficult scientific challenge. Mm -hmm. Well, on the, the LDT, the Lowell Discovery Telescope, for those listening who don't know, it's a 4.3 meter 
incredible freaking machine. Yeah. It's yes. a powerhouse telescope. Yes, the that, acronym, an IFM is the... Well, yes, yes, right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's ours, baby. Like, mm-hmm. all of our astronomers get access to it. Um, NASA mm-hmm. has used it recently for some of their missions. It's mm-hmm. it's really cool. We're yeah. cool yeah. like that. We have, we have five um, institutional partners with the telescope. So that's Boston University mm-hmm. and the University of Maryland and Toledo. Northern Arizona University right here in Flagstaff and Yale. And so, yeah, they have purchased blocks of time Mm -hmm. on the telescope, which they use throughout the year. And that's really good because it brings in a whole new additional set of uh, faculty and graduate students and undergraduates with different sorts of research programs. So it it broadens the kinds of science Mm -hmm. that LDT is doing and increases its impact. And it's adorable. Yeah. It's so cute. Have you... It's so big. (laughs) The first time I walked up to the LDT, I um, uh, don't tell my boss. I am actually afraid of telescopes. There's like my legs get wobbly and like I get really (laughs) like scared to look at. I feel like I'm going to fall into space. I definitely get over it because I do it anyway. But Mm -hmm. I was terrified walking up the stairs to the LDT because it's like huge. Like you literally have to walk up these stairs to get up to it. Two stories to get to the observing floor. And my legs were already feeling weak and my hand, Uh palms sweaty, (laughs) mom's spaghetti, (laughs) all of it. And I got up there and Amanda was like, and here's the LDT. And I... Mm -hmm started laughing and she was like, I don't know if I've seen a reaction like that, but you just see this like goofy looking thing with like gaping teeth and it's smiling real big. Have you seen, you've noticed this. I haven't necessarily noticed like a face. No scientists notice. And it it slays me because you ask anyone else and they're like, oh my God, is that what it looks like? And then you ask a scientist and they're like, oh yes, the cube was the the mirror. I don't know. It's like the it's so to, funny. I do a psych evaluation. I, I made, um, because uh, I care greatly about the time that our staff spend here, um, our graphic designer made um, an LDT emoji. It's so good. I, I've Slack. seen the emoji. With, yeah. On Slack? Yes. Mm-hmm. That's the little teeth. Anyway, yeah. okay. I'm going to put, yeah, yeah I'm going to find it. You no, asked your next question. I'm going to find it. Um, yeah. It no, was, so I the, actually... Um, while we're on the topic of the LDT, I'm really excited. By the time this episode airs, mm-hmm. we're doing LDT tours. We um, are. I'm yes. so excited. I get to be part of the team that is awesome. building those yep. tours, and I'm just That's like awesome. Yep. So excited. It's gonna mm-hmm. be so cool. No, so. It, it's it's really a, a wonderful facility. So yeah, the telescope is 135 tons. Yeah, um, and it moves like silk because everything is so well balanced. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, the mirror. When we say 4.3 meters. And whenever you talk about a telescope in that fashion, you're referring to the the size of the primary aperture. So the mirror is 4.3 meters across, and that mirror alone weighs uh, 6,700 pounds, and it took about uh, six years and about $7 million to fabricate mm-hmm. just the mirror. That's crazy. And uh, the full facility was 53. Ah, yes, there. there. Okay. So... <laughs> Tell there me that's not. We'll, we'll put that's, this on our Discord. That yeah. is adorable. It's and so that's sweet. exactly what it looks like. Yep. Yeah, it is. Okay, I want to make plushies for the gift shop. <gasps> See, I don't so think cute. of these as eyes. I think of those as bent cast grain ports. But, you know. <laughs> What's that? 
tell me what it, what are so, in the eyes of the LDT. So potentially, I don't know um, if the video can pick this up, but <laughs> so the L we can mount instruments at the LDT in a variety of different places, mm -hmm. and so it has the the cube at the back is the what what we use right now, and that's what we call the RC focus, which is the Ritchie Creation focus, and we can put five instruments on that cube and switch between them very rapidly, which is one of the sort of unique, uniquely powerful design features of the Swiss telescope. Swiss Army Knife. Swiss Army Knife. Yeah. That's what that's what our former director, Bob Millis, called it, a Swiss Army Knife. He got the idea for me. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah, really. I texted him and I was like, Oh, Swiss I did Army not know knife. that. Okay. okay. It's okay. <laughs> um, and then up at the, the top end, there's the prime focus. And in principle, you can take the top end off and put a camera up there and get mm -hmm. a very wide field of view. We haven't done that yet because the camera you would put up there is probably a cool $20 million or so. And I just yeah. don't have that lying around. And that's... <laughs> And there's all these ports around the main ring on the side, where in principle, instead of the, the hole in the primary mirror, you know, that light bounces through and goes to the cube, you could put a turret in there with a tertiary mirror, and then light would come in, bounce off the secondary, and bounce off the tertiary to the side. And the advantage of that, the platforms on the side, is they're, they're hefty, and you can put uh, big bulky instruments there that you wouldn't be able to just hang on the back of the telescope. Yeah. We've never implemented that because again, it's it's a very expensive and very complicated design challenge. And right now, the the commitments we've made to our partners and the sort of science we're doing with the cube at the back is is you know mm -hmm. adequate for the moment. <laughs> nice. I know some of those words. <laughs> yeah. Tertiary. 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 Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that is. Uh, it's an impressive telescope, and mm -hmm. I love that. Mm -hmm. It is uh, awesome. Yeah, it's being used to look for aliens. Can we say that? Is that not? I mean, it's not for life. So for evidence of. So, we're. I mean, we're certainly not looking for right aliens. Um, <laughs> but you know, e Express the the reason that Yale and and in particular the the investigator at Yale, Deborah Fisher, who's now um, actually the director of astronomy at the National Science Foundation. Mm -hmm. um, this is a very high precision spectrograph that is designed to be able to detect Earth-like planets mm -hmm. around Sun-like stars. So you need a, a star the mass of the Sun and a planet the size of the Earth. And that's a really tough assignment because yeah. the planets that, perhaps not surprisingly, that are easiest to find are the big ones, the mm -hmm. Jupiters that impact their stars more. The little Earths just have a tiny effect on their parent stars, so they're very difficult to detect. So this is really more, it's finding planets that might be capable of supporting life as we know it. And we know they're all over the place, right? Yeah. You know, from mm -hmm. starting with, you know, the first discoveries of exoplanets back in the 1990s, you know, mm -hmm. the first planet around a sun-like star, 51 Pegasi B in 1995. Since then, we've found thousands of them. And just, you know, doing statistical inference, you figure most or all of the stars in the galaxy have one or more planets. Yeah. And then you start doing the math, right? There's 200 billion stars in the galaxy, perhaps several stars per planet. Mm -hmm. You're, you know, a trillion planets, possibly, mm -hmm. in the Milky Way galaxy alone, mm -hmm. and a couple of trillion galaxies strewn about the cosmos. So, mm -hmm. you know, the canvas up there for potential in discovery is just extraordinary. <clears throat> I love this for two reasons. And one is because Lowell Observatory, obviously, Uncle Percy, Percival mm -hmm. Lowell, mm -hmm. God love him, um, brilliant and 
as we always say on the podcast, proof that there are no dumb questions. There is nothing, there is no such thing as a dumb question. You ask Mm -hmm. something, you Mm -hmm. research something. He was looking for um, the possibility of life on Mars and look what he inspired. He inspired Martians. He inspired, um, or is it Orson Welles? Oh, uh, H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells. Wells. He inspired H.G. Wells. He inspired um, what we have today and the research that Lowell's accomplished because mm-hmm. he asked that question. Absolutely. And I mean, it's a question that it's not, it's just, I also like it because it's like, that is human curiosity. Right. Yeah. And if you've been through school and taken science in, in school, I mean, you know, the basic procedure that they present, you know, you form a hypothesis, you test it, you mm-hmm. prove it or refute it. And the, the critical thing there for everyone to remember is if, if, you say, well, maybe it's this, and you prove that wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a failure, mm-hmm. and it's not a bad thing. In fact, you you learn a lot from negative results like that because yeah. you're you're removing possibilities from the arena of things that you might have to discover. So, mm-hmm. testing things and proving them false is as valuable as uh, proving them correct. Yeah, process <laughs> of elimination. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and I mean, we're still. We're still trying to answer that question, like, are we alone? And I think that's fascinating because, of course, if there were an alien, we couldn't talk to it. It's not like we could be like, what's up, neighbor? (laughs) Yeah, and that's actually a question that's been asked for a long time, Mm -hmm. too, at at serious scientific conferences. Suppose, suppose we got a signal from a nearby star Mm -hmm. that was unquestionably of intelligent origin. Mm -hmm. You know, just it could not possibly be random. You know, maybe we could even decipher it. And the question is... I saw that Carl Sagan movie. Should Mm -hmm. we answer yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, what's out there? Well, they uh, probably already got the Arecibo message. Yeah. So. Well, they, then they got television broadcasts, right? So yeah. Oh, God. Yes. Yeah. been accidentally broadcasting since like TV was right. a thing. I mean, they're... Unfortunately, I mean, since the 40s. I mean, they've got... Not our best foot forward humanity, I mean, but... Well, I mean, Gilligan's Island. I mean, you know. Yeah. If Gilligan's Island is the first thing that some intelligent life form sees, I would be so happy. That would be great, <laughs> yes. honestly. That would be freaking fantastic. <laughs> um, or like Elvis did his live broadcast from Hawaii. Imagine, yeah. like, that's the first thing they get. That'd oh be God. cool. That, yeah. that would do us so well. Like, this is the coolest party planet ever. Right? <laughs> now, if some of the other stuff that was happening in the 40s that was live broadcast first, yeah. that would be very unfortunate. And aliens, if you are getting this broadcast, we yes. didn't mean it. Um, <laughs> Just stay where you are. Disregard. Please disregard, <laughs> dear God. Um, so yeah, let's uh, let's refocus to the sun, mm-hmm. just because it's cool, and we haven't we haven't talked about it yet. And it's mm-hmm. it's really I, the first time I saw the sun through uh, the solar telescope here mm-hmm. at Lowell will be forever ingrained in Haley's memory because I brought it up in like for a month, just yeah. a podcast recordings. <laughs> I'm like, but can we talk about the sun? Just because it was so mind blowing. I didn't think about it because it's just always there. Yeah. And right. you don't think of it as a star. Mm-hmm. And then you look at it through a solar telescope, like the one we have at the um, the Geo Valley Open Deck Observatory. And it's like this literal, like, it's it's amazing. It's just mm-hmm. so cool to see it. I don't I never yeah. always say fire. It's yeah. gas and yeah. hydrogen, right? Gas and plasma, yep. Plasma. Uh-huh. And you see, like, the... Come, like the hydrogen firing off of it and all of right. that. It's and so incredible. That's, yeah, and that's the really, you can, of course, look at the sun in many different ways. 
And so we have some telescopes with just a, a, a white light filter, because, mm -hmm. I mean, we have to make the obligatory public service announcement here, right? You never look at oh the sun. Oh, my God, don't look at the sun. <laughs> even even without <laughs> optical it. aid. Yeah. Um, but, you we know, need a we, scrolling ticker at the bottom. Do yes, not so look directly at the sun. the scrolling ticker, right? Yes. Do not, just, Thank yeah, you. for 45 minutes. We're talking to Nate. Yeah, thanks, Nate. <laughs> yeah, Nate's off camera here. Yeah, our production <laughs> guy. Um, so... You can use just a, what we call a neutral density filter, which just mm -hmm. knocks down the brightness by, you know, 99 or more percent. And then... 99 percent. Yeah. And then the sun looks, in white light, fairly nondescript. Mm -hmm. I mean, you see it looks kind of like a cue ball, and you'll see little dark sunspots, which are mm -hmm. the, some of the most mm -hmm. familiar mm -hmm. manifestations of the solar activity cycle. Oh, my God. But it then, does look like a cue ball. It does. That's yeah. a perfect... Because I was like, sphere, but it looks heavy. Yeah. Like, there's something about it, but you can see the dimensions of it, and it's... Yeah. And and yeah, if you look carefully, you know, at the white light image of the sun, you it will have a dimensional look to it because as you look from the center out to the edge or in, in astronomy we call it the limb, mm -hmm. you can notice it gets noticeably darker. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And we call that limb darkening. And that is that's a physical effect because the sun is a sphere. Mm -hmm. And when you're looking at the center of the disk, you're looking straight down into the sun's atmosphere, but when you're looking at the side, you're looking obliquely through through the atmosphere. And so you're you're looking into a different layer that's a little bit cooler. Uh -huh. And so so it you're you're seeing a temperature gradient and that makes the outer bands That makes so much sense because yeah, it's makes, not gonna have a shadow. See? I never thought about it because, like, you look at like a cue ball, like you were saying, and it has those dimensions, but it's almost like it's the shadow of it. Right, right. It doesn't and, have yeah, a shadow. Yeah. Yeah. And so then, what you're, I think, referring to is the hydrogen alpha filter, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. So that's a special filter that is only letting through a particular wavelength of light. It's at um, for the the nerds in the audience. It's at uh, 656 nanometers, mm -hmm. and that looks orange to our eye. So if you put a prism up, it's going to be where the orange part of the spectrum is. And the sun is mostly hydrogen. And so you're seeing the sun as it's emitting in the light of the hydrogen atom. And that, what that does is this brilliant white light is all taken away. And the emissions from hydrogen, that's where you see yes. the little filaments yeah. and, 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 and prominences and flares in the, in, mm -hmm. in the solar atmosphere. You see these little things hanging off the limb in the mm -hmm. hydrogen al mm -hmm. alpha filter. That's yeah. hot hydrogen plasma. It actually, doesn't look like that. It does not look like that. It looks like a bib an angel from the biblical from the Bible. Like it looks almost mythological. Like when you're looking at it, I swear to God, it looks. And those, if you look, those filaments change rapidly. So you uh -huh. can look in the H alpha filter and you'll see a flare and you can go back two hours later and it'll be different because yeah. they are constantly evolving. Mm -hmm. um, and it's those, terrifying uh, to behold. <laughs> yeah. Yep. No, I, I think it's just gorgeous. I mean, it's, yeah. it's beautiful. And these structures yeah. are enormous, right? Because if the sun is that big, you know, the earth is like, yes. right? the sun is about 108, call it 110 roughly, the times the diameter of the earth. So yeah. those structures you see in the atmosphere are probably two, three, four times Honestly, the fact that we see the sun at all and not just, oh, my God, there's because just if you see the scale of it, it's like, yeah. how do we see this orb out there? Yep. It's amazing. It's but, crazy. I mean, there's literally nothing like it on Earth. Like there's yeah. nothing <laughs> there's nothing to even compare it to. Well, it's like, a good thing it's not on Earth. I'm really glad about that. The ultimate tanning spot. Yeah. <laughs> 
no. But yeah, I highly suggest uh, if you come up to Lowell. To yeah, look by all that means. Telescope. Yeah, there's plenty to do during the day, so oh come up God. and take a look through the solar telescopes. Yeah, it's like <laughs> our our biggest secret that shouldn't be a secret. People will come up during the daytime. They're like, oh, we'll just come back at night. I'm like, bro, but have you seen the sun? Yeah, yeah. go see the sun. It's no, cool. It's crazy. It's super cool. Um, and it actually, it literally is what we call a cool star. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not talking about like, you know, shades and <laughs> right, right. No, but, but, you know, cool stars are, at least as I think of them, stars that do the kinds of things the sun does in terms mm -hmm. of its activity cycle, its sunspot cycle. The, the technical jargon would be they have a subsurface convection zone, which is what's generating, contributing to generating all this activity. Mm -hmm. Really high mass stars, the, the internal structure is, is different. And yeah. so those hot stars uh, behave very differently. And, and it's much, much more boring. <laughs> now, there are astronomers of all who would disagree with that, of course, but we, we all love our own stars. Yeah. <laughs> I love watching astronomers argue. It's my favorite pastime. It's so great. Honestly. It's amazing. Yeah. They're just nerding out and they're all excited. Totally right. Yes. Oh, my oh my gosh. It's so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> so the you're saying the elements inside are different because of the heat? Um, just, well, it so everything about a star... If you want to understand how a star evolves, the most important thing you can measure is its mass. Because mm -hmm. a star's mass governs most of its other physical properties. You know, its, it's radius, its temperature, how long it lives, the, the, the run of, of conditions through the interior as you go from the center to the core. Mm -hmm. and they're all driven fundamentally by its mass. Mm -hmm. um, and so... This is the standard thing we see when we look out in the sky. Actually, most of the stars you can see at night are pretty high mass because the high mass stars are more luminous and therefore they appear brighter to the eye. Mm -hmm. um, if you took the sun, for instance, mm -hmm. and take our sun and move it out into the universe at just a really nearby distance, celestially speaking, so say 30 light years yeah. um, or 10 parsecs, mm -hmm. it would be about the brightness of some of the, the faintest stars in the sky you can see. It's, oh. it's not a very bright star. It's kind of middle of the road. Yeah. Um, and, and lower mass stars are just invisible to the mm -hmm. naked eye. They're the most numerous. They're kind of the salt of the galaxy, the little mm -hmm. K and M stars. There's just everywhere. The sky is just filled with them, yeah. but they're so faint. You cannot see them unless you've got a pretty, pretty potent telescope. Yeah. Yeah. Well, our show, you know, our sun's not trying to show off. It's just, it's my <laughs> No, our sun business. is, it's pretty Working sedate. Working hard. Mm -hmm. And, you know, go, going back to, you know, our, our research program, mm -hmm. um, we're trying to understand how stars change as they evolve. Mm -hmm. And that would be useful to know. Yeah. yeah that would yeah. be nice. And yeah. admittedly, now we're talking about things that take, take place over hundreds of millions to billions of years. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. but... What's really interesting about the sun? You You'll know, still be at low. Hmm? You'll still be at low. <laughs> yeah, but I'll, I'll I will I'll be moving on to something else by then because oh, okay. five thousand yeah, yeah. more years of observing the same thing, I'm just going to be going stir. Yeah, yeah, so, that's true. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> um, but um, you know, we know that the sun influences climate. Uh -huh. You know, it's, it provides energy to the, the Earth's atmosphere. You know, for most of Earth's history, it has been the dominant driver of climate change. That's a little different these days with the, the degree of, of human emissions. Um, but, you know, every now and then, this, what the stuff you see through the hydrogen alpha filter, the, mm, the, the, the sunspots and, no, the, the red one. Like the red one, the okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the activity cycle, all these manifestations of the cycle go away. The sunspots mm -hmm. disappear. And that happened in the um, 
the 17th century for about 70 years. We call that the Maunder Minimum. Oh, yeah. 70 year, just the solar cycle, the normal sort of up and down of the sunspots just went away. What? Um, yeah. It's, uh, now like the, a few hundred years ago, they just stopped? Yeah, from about 1645 to about 1710. We call that the Maunder Minimum. And it corresponds precisely with a period of a, a severe episode of the Little Ice Age. It's long, cold winters in Europe, yeah. um, crop failures, you know, famines. It was kind of a tough time. And so there's this interesting correlation mm -hmm. between changes in solar activity and multi-decadal, you know, regional climate change here mm -hmm. on Earth. And, and so that's part of what one of the things we're trying to understand. And what we sort of tend to see, we were talking about stars gradually kind of uh, yeah. as they age. <laughs> and so... And then... Yeah, yeah. And so for our program, we've had these hundred stars and some of them are these relatively young stars and they're very active in the cycles like this. Yeah. And then you got stars like the sun and every so often it's, oh, I'm just going to take a siesta here. <laughs> so is that what happened? Because my thing was like, oh my God, what happened to the sunspots? Who took the sunspots? Where were they gone? <laughs> well, so no, no. So recently, if you've looked at the sun recently, like within a couple of years ago, what you see is at solar minimum, mm -hmm. the minimum of the cycle, there's virtually no spots at all. And then there'll be a lot of spots and then there are not many mm -hmm. and then a lot and so on. This but is normal. This is normal. Yes. Now, but what happened in the 17th century was there were no spots, a lot of spots, no spots, and then no spots, no spots, no spots, no, 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 no. And yeah. then finally, uh, did it just like change its here. diet? Like what? Why did it? <laughs> so we, we don't understand the details of that. Either the, the more you, the more you, study the universe, the more you realize you don't understand. Mm -hmm. And we do have a general understanding of what causes activity cycles in the stars, but the, yeah. the details of why one would shut off, mm -hmm. um, really, I, we're, progress is being made, but we're, we're not really understanding that. Yeah. But what we do observe is, on our program, we've got some stars that are older than the sun. There's a little pair of stars in Cygnus, and you look at them, and they're just, they're flatlining like in a permanent oh. modern minimum. Yep, but they're solar mass. Wait, what and do you so, mean? Like they don't have any sunspots? They, yeah. Oh. Yeah. They, they The cycle has shut off. And so what we're starting to build is this picture of stars that are maybe three, four, five billion years old cycle regularly because they're rotating more rapidly. Mm -hmm. um, and then when they get to solar age, you start to hit a threshold where it's difficult for the star to maintain that cycle. And so every now and then, uh, it kind of fades out and then it comes back. And eventually, you hit a critical threshold as the star spins down where the cycles just go away permanently. So I fully expect in another billion or two years, sunspots will be a thing of the past. So, you know, I would say to all our viewers, watch our website and you know, we'll, keep, we'll keep you updated. We'll and, have a live and stream. We'll, we'll do a podcast in... Uh, you know, two billion and twenty-two, <laughs> and we'll we'll see if we were right or not. And <laughs> Jeff will great. still be working here. I'll Jeff still will be still be here. here. <laughs> Our boss will bring him back up here. <laughs> so holy crap! So okay, so because you were able to study these other stars, you could see like, oh, thank God, it's not just us. Right. Basically. Well, see, and that's the point you were getting to before. Suppose we just observe the sun. Then to understand how it evolves over 4 billion okay. years, I've got to okay. observe the sun for 4 billion years. Right. I don't want to do that. It's, Who has it's the time? boring. I don't have no, the time. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Okay. That's crazy. I mean, I can't think of a single astronomer who would put up with a <laughs> program for that long. That's awesome. Well, um, 
So is that your primary research focus then, uh, looking at the the sun cycles and everything? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, like any scientific field, astronomy has become highly specialized. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, consider medicine, right? You have general practitioners, but if you've got, you know, heaven forbid, a specific condition that really requires very specific treatment, you go to a specialist, somebody who knows everything there is to know about neuro or cardio or Mm -hmm. ortho or whatever. Mm -hmm. And likewise... You know, within astronomy and planetary science, you know, you, you tend to focus. And so when I went to grad school, I ended up in a research group mm-hmm. that was focusing heavily on the physics of cool stars like the sun and using spectroscopic techniques mm-hmm. to observe them. So that's kind of where I went. Now, uh-huh. you know, we have other astronomers here at Lowell who study higher mass stars or we're yeah. really focusing in you know, on the exoplanets, which certainly, like Joe, mm-hmm. which certainly requires deeply understanding how the stars work, too. Yeah. And then we have all our planetary scientists, and, you know, they may focus... As we're sitting in the... In the Hendricks Center for... Planetary Studies. Studies. Yes, I love it. Good. I'm glad yeah. you know the name of the building. That's good, good. Yeah. Um, I'd hope so, after five years of being here. Yes, right. <laughs> Um, but, you know, you, you might study moons or you might specialize in, you know, studying giant planets yeah. or, or, or the, the Kuiper Belt, you know, uh-huh. or like Dr. Dave Schleicher has made a career specializing in studying comets, which are some of these these mm-hmm. ancient relics from the very early solar system. You know, yeah. we learn about Wait, they're what? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're relics from the like early stages of the solar system. Mm-hmm. I thought they were just chunks of stuff that didn't get made into planets. So um, they are, but if they're sitting way out in the solar system, let's say in the Oort cloud, and they've been out there for billions of years, they sort of, like like objects in the Kuiper belt, they, they're sort of laboratories for what things were like in the very early days of the solar system. If you study their, their composition and what they're made of. Because it's the first stuff that the sun was like... Yeah, right. It's the stuff from the solar nebula that got left in the the cold outer part of the the cloud. And then every now and then there's some sort of perturbation and one of these things gets knocked loose and comes into the inner solar system and you have this beautiful comet, but it's this relic. And so Dave specializes in that. Mm -hmm. He's a solar archaeologist. Oh, I yeah, like that. Know, can we can we make that? A I thing? think you that's can cool. make. I think that's a oh, thing. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. And I, I saw your face when uh, Jeff said Oort cloud. So basically, we've Oort. got all of the planets, and then as you go further out, we've got the Kuiper belt, which is like I always call it the outer asteroid belt of the solar system. Right, which and is where Pluto like, hangs out. Yeah, Correct. exactly. And then further out, there's like this giant uh, cloud of like stuff, and that's the Oort cloud, and that's where a lot of comets come from. Oort, like O R O R T, named after a Dutch astronomer, Jan. Oort, Oort. who proposed its existence. Now, we haven't observed it directly, but stuff comes in that is consistent with something that's been knocked loose from a very distant cloud of basically debris out there. Um, And that's, you know, this kind of stuff is probably common around other star systems, too. We just can't prove it because it's not really observable because they're so far away. They're small and so far away. You know, we're just getting to the point of being able to observe planets around Mm -hmm. other stars. Maybe, you know, there's work to try to do exomoons and that yeah. kind of stuff. That's, woo, <laughs> we're really straining the, the edge of, of technology there. But but yeah, yeah so you specialize. And, mm-hmm. and so... Tag team it. <laughs> yeah. And so I've specialized in, you know, that that area that's of the cool. story. And it's been fun. So um, I know a lot of uh, the astronomers here that I've talked to, their uh, backgrounds are actually in like 
physics, right? They got yep. their bachelor's degree mm-hmm. in physics and Correct. then they went on to grad school in astronomy. Crazy people. Is that what you did? Yep. My undergraduate degree is from Johns Hopkins in physics. It's actually a BA uh, oh. in physics. And then I went to grad school at Penn State in the degrees astronomy and astrophysics. Mm-hmm. I'm not exactly sure what the difference is between astronomy and astrophysics. I mean, it's like kind of same thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, astrophysics sounds maybe more intimidating, so mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, but but yeah, and and you know, I astronomers come from all backgrounds. We had an astronomer here before who was uh, his undergraduate degree was in chemistry, you know, oh, and, and cool. you can approach or, or even English, yeah, you know, and you can pro- approach the field from different directions. Um, mm-hmm. And I know a number of professional astronomers who have done that as well and started a very different educational track and then mm-hmm. moved into it. Yeah. yeah. Cool. I actually, um, on the astrobiology uh, episode that I Mm -hmm. did, um, I was talking to educator Juan Ruiz and his background Mm -hmm. is in biology and he's going into astrobiology. And so I think that's And that's a burgeoning field. You know, again, now that we're getting to the point that you can look for planets that might harbor life, then Mm -hmm. you're sort of interested in in understanding more fully whether they actually might. And the James Webb Space Telescope is is optimized to do those sorts of observations by the infrared. Um, We're excited. We're very excited. And while we're at it, you know, I'll mention, you know, astronomy has so many related things that are critical, you mm-hmm. know, in, in terms of optics and engineering, the engineering that yeah. goes into instruments, let alone, you know, like for the LDT, let alone for space telescopes. Yeah. Um, there is a, a real need in a number of the, the centers for software engineers. Mm-hmm. You know, we're moving into an era of really big data and the yeah. need to deal with just you know, data archives of the size, the size I couldn't even have pictured when I was a grad student and you came home, you know, you had one, you know, a nine track tape or something from your (laughs) observing run. And now you've got just scads of data. Oh my God, what we have in here, what I just, my first day I did like a tour Mm -hmm. and I did tour, I used to be in oil and gas. It was like, these huge computer rooms and you hear the AC running and yeah, the special right, systems right. and the little robots picking up stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I know we don't have that, but I walked into our IT office and I was like, oh my God, you ha- we have s- like an entire storage yeah. area for just data. Yeah. It's crazy. And it's cool. it's yeah. insane. I mean, it's like a cooled room. It's nuts. And I was like... Oh, oh. Day, there's a <laughs> yes. lot up there. There's, yeah. there's probably there's a, lot a lot of data. There. You know, and facilities that are coming online in the very near future, like the Vera Rubin Observatory, which is an yeah. eight-meter telescope mm-hmm. uh, located mm-hmm. down in Chile, yeah. you know, should come into operation in the next year. That was, mm-hmm. it should have already been in operation, but COVID, COVID. Was, you know, COVID, right? Yeah. Um, and so the, the, the mission of that telescope is to look for transient phenomena in the sky. Mm-hmm. So they've got an immense field of view, mm-hmm. things that come and go. So things that change. Um, mm-hmm. And so their their mission is to survey the entire sky, mm-hmm. right? And then you go survey it again mm-hmm. and look for things that have changed. But the amount of data that's going to come out of that camera yeah. is yeah. enormous. That's and and so just dealing with those kinds of data volumes, both for the professional community, as well as, you know, these are federally funded facilities, you know, the, the data belong to all of humanity. And so the potential for citizen science is going to go through the roof. Yeah. Too. Will there I mean, be like an LMI? Like we have the, uh, uh, it's like a camera. Yeah. Basically. They, they have an imaging camera, but, but it's immense. You know, it's a, a mosaic <laughs> thing. I mean, LMI is one great big monolithic 
Mm -hmm. um, CCD, which has a lot of advantages for a telescope like LDT. Yeah. If you want a really huge field of view, you mosaic those things together. Mm -hmm. And so you can just imagine every one of those detectors you know, is an array of pixels that's producing data and you build this giant camera with a huge field of view and the data volume is just amazing. And asking for a friend, what would be something that would show up and then go away? So, um, asteroids passing through the field of view, ah. um, transient phenomena in the universe like variable stars, uh, supernovae, uh, uh, gamma ray bursts, um, mm. you know, things that change as they go along, things that are rotating and, and ah, change okay. their brightness. There's mm -hmm. all sorts of, and, and while we are at it, satellites. And yeah. <laughs> we got our segue. Segue, yeah. So, you know, this has been, a, a, duh, has been eating up a lot of my time Get because, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is going to be the next three hours of the yeah. podcast. Here. The next um, three hours of it. Um, yeah, everybody's going to need a transfusion by the end of this one. Um, so, um, you know, technology advances and we are, we're at a watershed era in space exploration. And, and mm -hmm. I want to preface this by saying it is not inherently, you know, a bad thing to explore space, right? We all use space every day, yeah. right? To navigate and communicate. Uh -huh. And we, we put space to good use for multiple uses Cat beyond means. astronomy. Yeah. Hmm? Cat memes. Yeah. Cat memes. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. We have to share the cat memes. Yeah. Um, so now we are entering this era where space is now accessible to nimble private sector companies, like right? Amazon. Like SpaceX. SpaceX. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Amazon. Uh, OneWeb. Um, and Blue Origin. Yeah. Right. And so um, in 2019, you know, SpaceX launched the first tranche of 60 Starlink satellites and yeah. they were really bright and kind of caught astronomy by surprise. Mm -hmm. And since that very long story and short... And they didn't ask. Well, no. So there had been long... There had been conversations going on with the radio astronomy community for quite some time because, you know, satellites have downlinks, they communicate, and they use yeah. part of the radio spectrum. And the radio spectrum is very crowded and highly regulated. What caught everybody by surprise was just how bright the Starlinks yeah. were. I mean, easily visible to the unaided eye. Mm -hmm. And the problem there is that we all suddenly realized is facilities, particularly like the Vera Rubin Observatory, with a huge field of view and doing the entire sky, mm -hmm. you know, Satellite trails, satellite trails in, in a lot of images and yeah. could really compromise the mission. Mm -hmm. So after that, we've been working with SpaceX and other operators. And, you know, I, I want to say SpaceX has been extremely forthcoming and proactive in and spending a lot of time and effort to darken their satellites, look for ways to mitigate. Um, mm -hmm. we, we, you know, I was the co-organizer of a couple of wor workshops that the astronomy community participated in, industry participated, and it's like, okay, mm -hmm. what are the targets we need to get to? You know, you're not gonna make the satellites invisible. There's gonna be real impacts on astronomy no yeah. matter what. Yeah. But to the extent they can, I mean, SpaceX has a mission, they're gonna do it, but they are trying to be good corporate citizens about it. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, the, the concern is space is kind of a wild west. You know, it's largely unregulated. Yeah. And once, if you get an FCC license or something, there you go, you're good to go. And one thing we're actually quite concerned about is overcrowding of orbits and either unintentional collisions, which have mm -hmm. happened, yeah. or deliberate 
destruction of satellites, which you saw Russia do uh, in November of 2021 when it blew up one of its own satellites for an anti-satellite sort of, I mean, it was clearly military, yeah. but a defense test. But so that one event, that um, you can easily Google it. The, they destroyed, uh, a, I'm not forgetting the name of the satellite. It was one of their, it was a defunct spy sat, I think. Oh, and they blew yeah. it up. And that one test generated more bits of trackable debris, and trackable means they're the size of a softball or bigger, than all the Starlinks launched to date so far. We need and, Starfleet. Like, when, when? I mean, there's the Space Force. <laughs> yes, like, we need, like... Well, so, right, and this is, I think this is the purview of some of those agencies, and the mm -hmm. problem is you could get to a point where there is so much stuff up there that you have a cascade of debris. It's really like the yeah. opening scene of Gravity, which all of a yeah. sudden is seeming not so far-fetched. Yeah. You could render low Earth orbit basically unusable because there's so much mm -hmm. junk floating around up there. Well, and how can we send stuff up? There's so much junk. Yeah, it makes me think of Wally, -E, where they launch and they just like hit a bunch of space debris. Yeah, well, and that's a very real thing. So yeah. we just launched the James Webb Space Telescope, right? Mm -hmm. Ten billion dollars, yeah. and they're you know the next of NASA's great flagship observatories are now very much under you know way down the road in developing, right? The mm -hmm. Nancy Grace Roman Telescope, for example. Yeah, um, and so you have to launch through all of this and mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's it's one of those things like it's it's frustrating because there's so much like you feel sort of helpless so i'm glad uh -huh. that the companies are trying to respond to it in their organized efforts mm -hmm. because then of course it's, it's almost like climate change like you know you can say like recycle your milk cartons change out that light bulb for light pollution well, <laughs> it's yeah. like well. it, it is what i would call a wicked problem and the problem is it requires cooperation Mm -hmm. between all the agencies. Because actually yeah. what we concluded, you know, after SpaceX launched the Starlinks in 2019, and, you know, the, the group of us that was working on this, was this was coming through my light pollution committee mm -hmm. involvement. Oh, yes. Can oh, you yeah. tell us really quickly? For yeah, comments? I was the chair, the AAS. This is the longest title I have ever held. I know, and that's why I want you to say it. <laughs> Excruciatingly right. slowly. Okay, yes. this is the next hour of the podcast. <laughs> the American Astronomical Society's Standing Committee on light pollution, radio interference, and space debris. Is there an acronym for that? LPRISD. LPRISD. It's an easy acronym. They're not good at um, acronyms. But, you know, we were... We <laughs> Astronomers, were, it's not their Some good. of our members were doing the sort of the modeling, and we actually concluded at that time, you know, SpaceX was look, an initial deployment of 1,500 satellites mm -hmm. at about 600 kilometers um, altitude. And our conclusion was that would actually be cool. Um, that would not be an existential problem for astronomy. You know, you'd have some satellites visible after sunset and before sunrise. Uh -huh. you, know, you know, you'd have maybe some more streaks, but in general, you could deal with it. The point is, if you have a, a satellite constellation 10 times as big and then four or five more companies get in the game and then... Uh, Korea gets in the game and Russia gets in the game. And, you know, OneWeb is actually now a UK company. And so you have operators all over the world who maybe want to provide connectivity to their countries. And suddenly you've got a couple hundred thousand satellites up uh. there. And that's where you're getting into the, the point where space debris comes a problem. And then something people don't maybe not often think about. The typical on-station service life of, say, a Starlink satellite mm -hmm. is about five years. Uh -huh. So that means... Every on average, every year, about twenty percent of your fleet is 
dying, right? That satellite's just reaching the end of its service life. So you deorbit it. Uh -huh. um, and what happens when it deorbits? It comes into the atmosphere and burns up. And all of that metal that it's made of gets deposited into the upper atmosphere. Now, if you have 100,000 satellites and you're depositing 20,000 a year into no the atmosphere, now you're changing the composition of the... And so what is yeah. the implications for environment and the climate if you're introducing this cloud of metal uh, into the upper atmosphere? You know, oh, people geez. are working on that and trying to understand, but it's, it's an example of how... You know, technology is really useful, really cool. We make very good use of it. It's yeah. enabled wonderful things, but it goes really fast and you can have all sorts of unintended side effects that we haven't thought about. Yeah. And I've seen iRobot. <laughs> yeah. Right? So, yeah, we're just in a position in upper... And, and actually, now to come down to the ground and talk about ground-based light pollution, mm -hmm. similar thing. You know, we increasingly we're using LEDs for outdoor yeah. illumination mm -hmm. and... Just recently, right now in Flagstaff, we are updating the lighting code to include dark sky LED standards. So, mm -hmm. you know, Flagstaff is renowned for being the world's first international dark sky community, which yes. was awarded in 2001 by mm -hmm. the International Dark Sky Association. Mm -hmm. But what was happening recently, developers were coming to the city and saying, well, how do we handle this kind of lighting? And they're like, we don't know, because the code doesn't deal with it. And yeah. so we've spent the past several years working on, you know, LED standards for good dark sky lighting, you know, puts good illumination mm -hmm. on the ground, but preserves the dark skies that we are yeah. world famous for. My favorite story is when uh, Target came to Flagstaff. Oh, God. Mm -hmm. And uh, Flagstaff and Target was like, I don't know. Yeah, we'll build it here. Cool. There's mm -hmm. college students. Mm -hmm. And the everyone in Flagstaff was like, nope. <laughs> and, until and then Tyre's like, whoa, okay. I mean, they like yeah. almost carried him out of town on a, a log, and then they were like, shoot, okay, no, like we'll do the thing. Sorry, yeah. we didn't know it was so important. It's like people really care about it here. Yeah, yeah. which is so cool. It's like, really cool, and it's literally because of Lowell. They were like, yeah, we like astronomy. Well, you yes. want to keep doing astronomy. Yeah, well, <laughs> and Weatherford and all. Yeah, all this that. is what's so cool. You know, you go around Flagstaff and at that, go down to late for the train and get your dark sky mocha. And yeah, you've got dark sky brewing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, you can see. I can see the Milky Way from my driveway, and I just thought that that was the most insane, so cool yeah, thing. Yeah. Yeah. Ever. Right in the middle of a city of eighty thousand people, and there's yeah. the Milky Way. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Which it, it can be done. It can be done. And actually, one of our hopes was these new LED standards. We're, we're modeling a couple of different types of LEDs with the hope that this might be an example that mm -hmm. other communities can look to Flagstaff and adopt for doing, you know, yeah. good dark sky lighting. I mean, there's there's very rigorous lights that we will be using here mm -hmm. in Flagstaff that are probably overkill yeah. for other communities mm -hmm. that don't have a quarter billion dollars worth of observatory assets right, right yeah. in their city limits. Well, they don't make hydrogen ones anymore, right? Um, no, 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 no. Those are, yeah, these are um, the white LEDs are mm -hmm. sort of the default that everybody is switching to from uh, the hot... The, the, the default is high-pressure sodium. Right high-pressure sodium. That's what you usually see. I knew it started with an H. I was so close. Um, there, there are other types of legacy lighting that are even, that, that are very Cost bad. High-pressure sodium is, that's what you see at night on a commercial airplane flight, and you look at the, kind of the straw yellow lights yeah. of cities at night. It's, that's high-pressure sodium, which is in wide use. It's actually not a terrible dark sky light. The mm -hmm. problem is white 
LEDs are vastly worse. And yeah. what communities tend to do is they throw away the HPS and put in white LEDs and double their sky glow. Yeah, and, and you can tell I, even in cars when you're on the highway. Oh, yeah. you got like the uh, oh. like like it's awful. Oh, those are awful. It's yeah. so bad here because I feel like my eyes are still adjusting. I've been here several years. Yeah, and you know I'm always like, why doesn't anyone turn their brights off? And yeah. and John was like, no, their brights aren't on. It's just very dark here. So yeah. when there's a light directly in your face, it hurts. Yeah. <laughs> but no, totally, you can be an internationally international dark sky community too. You yeah. certainly can. There's very easy ways to do it, and you know. I'll, Tell us about it, Dr. Hall. All right, <laughs> since you asked. Um, no, I mean, the simplest thing you can do, there's there's three legs of the stool, and the easiest one is shielded lights. Yeah. So you just use a light fixture that ensures no light is being emitted above the horizontal. It's mm -hmm. all going down. So these sort of open balls or something. It's yeah. Because if the light's going up, I mean, not only is it creating sky glow, it's not doing any good. I mean, nighttime light is yeah, to yeah. provide illumination and, and safety on the ground. And yeah. the more you Put shield the lights, the better you're doing. So that okay. is, you know, the one thing that any residential homeowner, regardless of whether there's an ordinance in place, it's yeah. just really easy. The other thing it does is, is it saves... Um, neighborly strife because you're yeah not, yeah you're not mm -hmm. blasting your neighbor with a floodlight or something like True. that what if you also wanted to save the moths save what the moths so that's that's an interesting question um <laughs> that dark skies go well beyond astronomy and usually yeah. when i'm giving a talk to a community i usually don't start by talking about astronomy, because that's mm -hmm. that's pretty specialized. And if it's a community that doesn't have an observatory nearby, why would they care? Yeah, you know? that's fair enough. So we we will talk about you know the environmental mm -hmm. impacts, you know, and if the food chain is fragile, and you know a moth may seem irrelevant, but maybe it's not. Um, but also with LEDs, the increasing evidence. Mm -hmm. uh, for impacts on human health from yeah. disruption of the natural light-dark mm -hmm. cycle and disruption of circadian yeah. rhythms. Mm -hmm. It's very clearly tied to increased prevalence of certain diseases. Yeah. Um, and yeah, absolutely. Oh, I didn't know and that. if our listeners want to know more about how light pollution affects wildlife, we did an episode with Raider Lane. Oh my God, oh, awesome. Canyon. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. Dark Sky Ranger. Dark the Grand Sky Canyon. Ranger. Oh, Raider's done a lot of work on that. Yeah. Oh yeah, he's yeah. so cool. Yeah, yeah. so him. we talked a little bit more about like how it affects wildlife and everything on that episode. We so. did. Great. Check yes. it out, guys. Cool, yes. check that out for sure. Yes. Yeah. And we are... At time. Super out of time. Yes. Oh, yeah. That yes. went quickly. It right? really Doesn't did. It <laughs> always does. It always does. It's crazy. Well, um, thanks for coming, Jeff. This oh, absolutely. Super My fun. pleasure. It's been a great conversation. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. And uh, to all our listeners out there, please remember that we have our Discord channel. We'll uh, drop in some info, uh, some things that we talked about on this episode. The, like LDT, the emoji. LDT emoji. We got you. Um, and then we also have our Twitter. So go ahead and follow us. If you have any questions, go ahead and uh, send tweet put it in the discord mm -hmm. use the hashtag hashtag ask star stuff mm -hmm. um and come back in two weeks yeah yeah come back in two weeks we'll have a new episode yeah and mm -hmm. um uh one last question yeah. what's your favorite part of working at lowell and why is it us yes Specifically, Cody, Specifically and Cody and Haley. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Bye. No, I, I, I was going to say my favorite. Honestly, my favorite part of working at Lowell is the team, and uh -huh. you know, it, it, it's it's just that. No, no, seriously, it's a, a wonderful group of folks. Um, uh, that was you know very 
supportive and kind to me when I started as yeah. a clueless, dewy-eyed postdoc. And, <laughs> and, and at, you know, at that point in 1992, the team was probably about 45, and mm -hmm. now it's 153, if I recall yeah. Amanda correctly from yesterday. So yeah, delighted to have all of you on board and have these cool conversations. Nice. It's amazing that um, the entire team and how incredible everyone at Lowell is that were your favorite. We won't tell anyone though. Uh, no, yes, we won't yes. tell anybody. Don't tell anyone, no. so you can't no. publish this podcast. Oh, no, oh, no, no, no. It's all scrapped. It's yeah, all scrapped. It's scrapped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Editing, <laughs> editing, editing, cutting room Yes, floor. yes. Nate. <laughs> Nate. righty. Well, bye, guys. All Thanks right. for coming. Bye. Thanks for watching. This podcast was made possible by our members and donors. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support our nonprofit in making more digital education like this available, go to lowell.edu slash donate. Thanks for listening.